Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to the afternoon show, Bill Arnold, with you, and I'm just loving our time together. I hope your uh, Thanksgiving weekend was good, and the time with family or not with family, whatever you did, I hope it worked out well, and your heart is full because God loves you, and God was with you, and he'll never leave you or forsake you. Um, So here's the updated news. Um, Dr. Lamb has not shown up yet, so he is calling in from his residence. Um, I believe he lives out east somewhere. And we have not heard from him yet, so we're um, hitting a pause uh, on the emotions of God. He's writing a book on, on the emotions of God, and I still have in studio uh, Pastor David Miles. So how nice of you, David, not to go anywhere. Well, it's privilege. Nice. Always always good to be with It's nice that you stayed and chatted a little bit. I did kind of uh, tease the audience a little bit that we we're going to talk about the emotions of God and you do read in, in Scripture when you hear about God's wrath and His delight and His compassion and His jealousy and His divine hatred. And those are all very, I don't know, they're pretty challenging topics. Yeah, they're really they're really robust. And, you know, one of the things that's amazing um, is the idea that God actually makes Himself communicable to us. Um, there's a Dutch theologian named Henry Bavink, and he had this one doctrine that really enjoyed. It was called the doctrine of the incomprehensibility of God. The idea that God truly is like incomprehensible, but at the same time, God has chosen uh, to make Himself known to us. You know, and I find that just so utterly you know, fascinating. Mm-hmm. And and I'm just, I'm blown away um, by God's goodness in that. And you see things like in Jeremiah chapter three, um, you know, he says in verse two, thus says the Lord who made the earth, the Lord who made, formed and established it. The Lord is his name. Call to me and I will answer you and will tell you great and hidden things you have not known. And I, I find that just fascinating, Bill, because number one, one, I love God's just gracious, like, you know, come alongside, because he's like, he's like, listen, call to me, call to me. By the way, mm-hmm. I want to let you know, call to me. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, by the way, in case you're wondering, and I will answer you, you know, and I will tell you great and hidden things you have not known. And the fact that God has made it that we can even know him is, is amazing. So he speaks in these what we call anthropomorphic ways like they're they're examples like you know the bible talks about god as spirit but it'll use terms like the hand of god mm-hmm. and the eye of the lord looks to and fro and so god makes things he he explains things in ways that we can actually comprehend and uh that that in and of itself is is a gift of grace and mercy in the last segment david we talked about in, in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, where God says, now let's reason together. And how powerful that is that God w- would say to us, let's, let's reason together. And I would think that would, I would want people to understand when you come to saving faith in Christ, it's because it seems to be 
and I promise, the most reasonable thing you've ever heard. You can exchange your broken, sinful life, which is uh, condemned to eternal uh, hell, in exchange for God's life of Jesus on the cross and eternal security in heaven. The reasonableness of that should be, I want that right now. Yeah. Because, (laughs) you know, uh, I mean, like, it's really like a, literally almost like a no-brainer. Like, God's, God's like, I'm giving you all of me, you know, in my perfection and my goodness and my grace and my love and my feeling for all of your brokenness, you know. Uh, it almost seems like, God, that's kind of unreasonable on your part because, like, man would not necessarily do that because we're always trying to figure out to have a win-win situation or something like that or, you know. But here he he's like, I'm giving the, uh, I think one person's called it the great exchange, mm-hmm. you know. And, yeah, and I mean, I remember sometimes, like, people would say, like, even, like, kids would say, you know, that's not fair. It's like, well, if life was fair, we'd all be in hell, mm-hmm. you know, because we, we violated God's moral and holy law, and we basically have told him, you know, go drop, jump off a proverbial cliff, which, you know, the earth is his, and the universe is his, so that's even silly enough us trying to tell God, mm-hmm. Here, here's where you go. And yet, going back to your verse, he's like, hey, come now. Let, let's reason. And, like, stop and think of that for a moment because God is the, he is the Lord God Almighty. He is the king. And so he really didn't have to say, hey, let's reason. He could just be like, uh, this is what it is. But he's like, you know, come here. Let, let's, let's reason about this. You know, and um, Bill, it kind of goes back to the whole thing, like with Jesus. John two says that Jesus, in in cleansing the temple, it says he didn't entrust himself to man, because he knew what was in the heart of man. But then you go through the Gospels, and what does Jesus repeatedly do? He would ask questions when he didn't have to. Mm-hmm. You know, and so. Wow. When we have a feeling of jealousy, though, because maybe you have something that I would like myself, so I feel a little bit of jealousy, that's the different use of the word jealous than when God uses it. Yeah. Because when, when he is jealous of things that belong to him, that's a different kind of jealousy than me just wanting something you have, right? Yeah, it's not so much like, you know, I'm, I'm wanting to, you know take from um, the earth is the Lord's, the fullness throughout the world and all who live in it, Psalm 24. I mean, so like God's not, when he, his jealousy isn't some sort of kind of capricious, you know, mm-hmm. pitiful kind of petulant type of, you know, I have to have my, my way. Um, you know, he's, he's jealous for his glory in a right way because there's nothing that compares to the fullness of what it is. You know, it's kind of like sometimes as a, as a parent or as, as a relative, like when you see your niece or nephew and there's a party that, that's jealous for their good, you know, um, you know, I've had it with some, some people like for Tammy and I, we have people who have been like sons and daughters to us, you know, and, uh, and remember saying to one of, one of the gals that we were praying for and just encouraging her not to settle when it came, um, to a man, 
you know, and uh, and having a man who loves Christ and and loving Christ would know how to love God's daughter, mm-hmm. and um, you know, and meeting you know meeting a guy and being like you know he's he's a nice person everything, um, but this person's not going to lead you uh, in Christ and serve you in that way. And being in, being able to say, you know, look, we're jealous for God's best in your life, you know, um, and using it in a good way, you know, are we, are we jealous that of that person? No, but we're, we're, we're literally saying like, this is God's best to follow and trust what he says in his word. And like, we're, we're jealous for that. Like we really desire that for you, mm-hmm. you know, more so than just whatever, you know, comes down the pike. Let's talk about another emotion God has, and that would be compassion. And I go right to Psalm 103, because it says in verse 4, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. And then in verse 8, it goes on to say, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. 13 says, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. So we hear that word compassion many times in Psalm 103. And if a person, David, is struggling and feels that they're in a very trying place in life, might they feel that God is not offering this compassion that we read about in Psalm 103? Yeah, we we can definitely feel um, that reality of it and... You know, I remember um, my wife, Tammy, saying one time, she's like, you know, um, not forgetting in the darkness the things that the Lord has shown you in the light. Mm, I like that. You know, and uh, um, because, like, you know, we we have to tell the truth, shame the devil. Life at times, it's hard, you know, uh, and there are ups and there are downs and there's moments where you feel like, you know, you feel like what Jesus wrote in scripture, my God, my God, you know, uh, where you at? Um, and I think, you know, Bill, you may have shared this illustration. I wonder if this is from when we did a thing with the, the guys on the God talk, the guys talk, you know, of you, you can be at a, at a, at an airport and there's not been a lot of flying lately. You know, and there can be a storm going on um, and you can take off and you can fly through, you know, weather and wind and break through the clouds and the sun is up there, you know, and you can see the beauty of it. But mm-hmm. you, you didn't see it when you're on the ground. Right. You know, um, and right now for some, they may feel like, you know, uh, Bill, PDM, I'm, I'm not like in a shower. I'm in a straight up hurricane right mm-hmm. now, you know. Um but there's a God who is faithful, who loves you. And the neat thing about it is that God's not just like looking down at your situation. You know, he's walking with you in it. And this is what comes back to all the imageries of, you know, you remember the the, the famous footsteps um, mm-hmm. um, painting or photo that would be on, on people's walls and the idea that, you know, Lord... I saw two two sets of footprints and then I only saw one. You know, did you leave me? And it's like, no, I was carrying you, you know. That's a powerful reminder. Yeah. I love this word, um, 
compassion because, you know, it's this really fun, like, to me, I think it's Italian, though it's it's Greek and it's polygnochismi. Um, and the word compassion, it's the same word that's used in Luke chapter 15 when it talks about the story of the prodigal son, which is really more about the story about the eldest brother, uh, you know. But when it says uh, that when, you know, the son basically goes off to a far land and he, he squanders all the resources with wine, women, and song. You know, he goes off to pick whatever city, if you want to say Vegas or Atlantic mm-hmm. City. Um, but he comes to his senses, and it says, And he rose, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. You know, he felt spolignochism, and ran and embraced and kissed him, you know. And and God op- operates in a way that is totally contrary to what we think it would be. You know, that we messed up and that it would be like, well, you know, I, you know, I told you, I told you, you know. But instead, this father ran, you know, embraced, falls, literally falls on his neck and begins to, to cry. And that same word, uh, the psalmist writes, going back to your psalm, your psalm bill, in Psalm 103, you know, he's like, bless the Lord, O my soul, all that's in me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquities and heals all your diseases and redeems your life from the pit? And, and then doesn't stop there. I know. And then it goes, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy? who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. I mean, like, it would have been one thing just to be like, who forgives all your iniquities? You know, and be like, yeah, you know. stop. That's enough. Enough. Yeah. But then it's like, heals all your diseases. Nice. You know, and... um, Satisfies your desires with good things. Right. Whoa. Redeems your life from From the pit. pit, You know, instead of... With love and compassion. Yeah. I mean, because, you know, we have all these idioms like, you know, you just need to, you know, lie in the bed that you made. <laughs> right. And all those those different things. And as you're talking about emotions, sometimes people feel kind of like this, you know, kind of strange, like Lee, when, what's that, when someone gets their just desserts, mm-hmm. you know, there's another one of our, our idioms. Yeah. And, you know, we all... Um, are <laughs> should be subject to some not some pleasant and just desserts, and we're not talking like pumpkin pie, apple pie. That's so true. No, so all right, we'll take a little break. We're uh, continuing the Monday afternoon mix. Much thanks to Pastor David Miles who stuck around. We'll take a short break. Be right back. Extension of the Monday afternoon mix. Liking this, David. Thanks for being jazz. here. It's a good deal, isn't it? It is. Love that jazz. You get your Bible open. What's up? Oh, we're still, you know, enjoying Psalm 103. Loving it. Yeah. And, um, you know, 
it goes on in verse 6 to say that the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed, you know, and it's the idea that God God does care about um, righteousness and God does care about justice, you know, and so um, when when there's a, a lack of of justice in the world, you know, when God's being his his moral law, his glory, his righteousness is being violated, uh, that's displeasing to God. And you know, we needed God's righteousness, Bill. And we see this so clearly laid out before a holy God in Second Corinthians chapter five. You know, he goes to say um, this. He goes. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know, and it's the idea that we're not going to have a right standing before God because, like, you know, we're cool enough or you know, that we have just great memory or country or origin or, mm-hmm. you know, favorite football team or or even some of, you know, our theological positions, you know. Um, it's going to ultimately be because of the righteousness of God and Christ on our behalf. Because, uh, you know, Proverbs says that riches do not profit in in a day of wrath, but righteousness delivers. And so um, what do you do when you have God who is love, but God is also righteous anger at the same time? Mm-hmm. And it's not capricious or spurious, you know, anger that he's, he's not just, you know, bouncing off all over the place. It's the idea that is holy and perfect that when things violate that, and there, there is an anger that is righteous. There is an anger that's just. Uh, Ephesians says that, you know, be angry, but don't sin. I mean, if we see that children are being abused, it's not like, oh, hand me another donut and, and move on. No, there, there's something just wrong about that, about vulnerable populations being um, abused by people. Mm-hmm. When I look to further down the, ver- uh, the uh, chapter, David, when you look at the life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. And I think of the brevity of life, and you think that in three generations you're forgotten. Yeah, I mean, I can remember my grandparents' names, maybe not my great grandparents' names. So in three generations, you're you're forgotten. But the beauty is, from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear Him, and His righteousness with their children's children. It's a beautiful thought. Yeah, and I think this is an important reminder. Um, you know. As people may come out of a weekend like, you know, Thanksgiving and the holidays and feel like it wasn't as, you know, happy of a holiday moment or they're they're looking at family things. Because like in our last section, um, I think I talked about some of the health things with my family. I'm trying to think of earlier when you were talking with Patrick if 
you guys were discussing health things and even discuss stuff with health of his family, mm-hmm. you know. And so sometimes we feel like, you know, are we just kind of shackled to that? And I want to go to Exodus chapter, you know, 34. Um, and it's, it's after uh, the people of Israel have come out of slavery, you know, and they go to the mountain and Moses goes up on the mountain to meet with God. And I used to think, Bill, that this was like a super long period of time from when they crossed the Red Sea until the golden calf situation, you know, where they decided, hey, you know what, Moses is not here. We're going to throw a party and go back to the calf. But that literally was six weeks, you know. And so Moses shows up and he sees his calf thing and they ground the thing down and they get rid of it. So it says, you know, the Lord tells Moses to come back up on the mountain. And so he does. Early in the morning, he goes up in the mountain as the Lord had commanded him. And in verse 5, and the Lord descended in the cloud and proclaimed and stood there with him, I'm sorry, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, but, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And we talk about how the impact of sin, and we see this in so many different things, that it does affect generation after generation. But the beauty in the gospel is that his love extends to thousands of generations. And that God can literally transform you, your family. Now, some things with your family, you might not be able to, to change anything of where you came from, but you can change the direction that you're going to go in. You know, you can say, Lord, by your grace, help us to move forward in a different way. And that's where in Psalm 103, it says, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting and to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandment. And see, it's in that to those who fear him. So mm-hmm. wherever you're at today, acknowledge the Lord. Amen. Just just acknowledge him. And, and it's okay for us to tell the truth and shame the devil and say, you know what? Our past is messy. You know, we can say we're tore up from the floor up, mm-hmm. you know. And so, you know, God, come in and change this. Transform me. Yeah. And instead mm-hmm. of instead of having, you know, a future going forward of saying, you know, I'm concerned about the anger and the wrath and the judgment of God, God is sitting here saying, you know what? I want you to experience the forgiveness and the joy in life. David Miles, you're a friend for staying and... Um being with me a little bit longer. It's been great. We're going, to take, we're going to take a little break. When we come back, we're going to get a little encore performance of uh, our friend Ace Collins talking about one of my favorite subjects of all, and that's heaven. Be right back. popular earlier, written by a man named Sanford Bennett, born in a a good place, I guess. He was born in Eden. Well, it's Eden, New York, anyway, in 1836. And, uh, you know, he was a graduate of the University of Michigan, 
But what changed his life was the Civil War. Uh, the Civil War was a different war than had ever been fought before because the weaponry had advanced so much since the Revolutionary War. And therefore, the blood uh, and the death that was inflicted was much higher than anyone had ever seen before. Uh, you know, he described it in some of his writings where he was at places where black dirt turned red. Um, and it was just red everywhere he could see from all the blood. He eventually um, went back home to Elkhorn, uh, Michigan, and began to publish the local uh, newspaper, and uh, then became a druggist as well. And he uh, had Joseph Webster step into his place of business one day, and he was filling a prescription, and after the prescription was over, he went up to talk to Webster. He loved to talk to Webster because Webster was a uh, was a student of Lowell Mason and George Webb, who were two of the greatest pu music publishers and, and musicians of the time. This was a man who had accompanied Jenny Lynn, who was one of the greatest known singers in America. He had worked on Broadway. Um, he had written The Wildwood Flower, which was one of the best known folk songs in the world. But on this cold winter day in 1867, uh, it was a depressed Webster that strolled in and sat down in Bennett's store. Um, and he said something that, 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 let's face it, Bennett had thought about a great deal during the Civil War. And he asked, how could a loving God allow things like this to happen? And they'd just been a, a tragic death in that town. They were also referring to the recent war, to the people they saw who had lost limbs and loved ones. And... Uh, you know, he just had no answer. And both of the men went back and talking back and forth. And we all do this. We talk about that after hurricanes or deaths or illnesses. You know, how could God let this happen? And one of the observations that they ended that conversation was with was, I guess we'll understand it better by and by. And the drugstore owner looked back at Webster, who had made that comment, and said, what if it was the sweet by and by? Mm. And he thought about, oh, wow. He said, that would be a good, that'd make a good hymn. And they sat down and in the next few minutes, wrote that song in the sweet by and by. And for that moment, it gave both of these men more hope. They never foresaw it as being this great hymn. But thanks to Webster's contacts, it was quickly published and became one of the best hymns in the United States in the late 1800s. Um, I, I think what's so profound about it, 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 it was written by two men who at that point in their lives were hopeless. And they were hopeless because of the tragedies they had seen in their lives. Um, they both had pretty much in some ways given up on things ever getting better. And yet, when they wrote this song, suddenly they were reconnected with God. And of course, everyone who has heard this song since has also felt that same kind of connection. Um, therefore, the questions that we don't have answers to are probably because we don't have the mental capacity to see the world as God does. And that's what these two men understood, that they were mortals when there was an immortal God who could see the answers and understand the way things played out and how they played out for the good. And in the sweet by and by, they're gonna, re they're gonna rejoin all of these people they had lost, all these people who have been tragically killed, 
and they were going to join them in a world that would know peace, that would know only peace, not war, and the answers would be there, and they would understand them finally. Ace, suffering produces such incredible art, doesn't it? It does. You know, um, I once talked to a very famous country music writer who had written scores of songs, and I asked him what the secret was, and he said the secret was to write about your life experiences. And I, I think that's nowhere more evident than gospel music. Uh, gospel music writers do not think of hooks like popular pop music writers do. They don't say, hey, well, here's a hook. Let's write a song around it. Mm -hmm. They actually, people who write hymns and write gospel music and great choral anthems, they're moved by a moment in their lives when heaven opens up and suddenly they're given this great inspiration not to write a song around a hook, but to write a song around a spiritual truth. And I think that's why these these songs have lived on for generations is because they are written around that spiritual truth. And that spiritual truth is what we have to hang on to here on this earth. Mm -hmm. um, you know, right. There's another song that is a, a Southern gospel song called I Wouldn't Take Nothing for My Journey Now that's really kind of similar in a way. But it, the inspiration was unique. Uh, Rusty Goodman, who wrote the song uh, from the famous Happy Goodman family, but he had he wanted to write the greatest song ever. He wanted to be the big act who wrote the rock and roll hits for Elvis and everyone else. And he failed miserably. The only thing he was able to do very well during that time was drink himself into stupors. Mm. And eventually he moved away from Nashville and he found his brother who was a preacher in Kentucky and started working in, in Kentucky and playing piano at his brother's church. And he ran into a man whose name was Shorty Carter. Shorty Carter was what we would call today developmentally disabled. He lived by himself, but he was known in the terminology of the time as the village idiot. That's an unfortunate term, but that's what people referred to him as. You know, and Shorty had this habit of going to every church in town and he would always want to lift his hand and, and, and give his testimony or talk or say something. And it worked once or twice. And then most preachers shut him down because they knew what he was saying was not going to make a whole lot of sense. And yet in this one church, the Goodman's aunt let him speak. And he talked about how horrible his life was and the way his people made fun of him because of his deficiencies and how he was ridiculed. But he wasn't going to let that get him down. He, wasn't, he was going to go forward and still believe in God. And he was going to hang on to his faith. And even in the face of everything that had happened in his life, he wouldn't take nothing for the life that he had been given by God. Well, several years later, he's dying in the hospital. And he's dying a painful death. And Rusty Goodman goes to talk to him. And in the midst of all of this, he asks Shorty, how you doing? And Shorty, in the midst of his pain, looked at Rusty and grinned and said, I wouldn't take nothing mm. for my journey now. And Rusty went home and wrote that song. And, of course, that became one of the signature songs for the Happy Goodman family. It has been turned into contemporary Christian hits and other things. And I think Shorty was given the temptation by the devil back then, by Satan himself, to sit there and curse people and get angry and get upset. And yet he had his faith and didn't do it. And I think that's one of the great lessons of life. And because of that faith, he went someplace where he was seen as equal with everyone else. And his pilgrimage had paid off 
in the end. And I think all of us need to have that attitude, no matter what happens to us. Hey, I wouldn't take nothing for the experiences I've had because they have given me an opportunity to be closer to God. That's beautiful. All right, Ace, how about Swing Low, Sweet Chariot? Ah, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. It's one of the few Negro spirituals that we can actually tie to the man who wrote it. Most Negro spirituals, we don't know who wrote Good Old Gospel Ship, Mm -hmm. which is an amazing song. But uh, Wallace Willis um, wrote this song. He was a former slave. uh, Alabama was actually owned by a Choctaw Indian. So here is a red man who owned a black man, uh, which is an irony that, that happened more than you would know. Uh, when the red man was driven off of his land and, and forced through the Trail of Tears to go to Oklahoma, Wallace went with him. But when he got to Indian territory, he was no longer considered a slave. The Indians considered him an equal. And so he actually escaped slavery through the ta- Trail of Tears with the Indians that went to Oklahoma. Once there, he worked in, later would work in a children's home. He taught himself how to read. He became a kind of a Bible scholar, very positive person. And in the school, he realized that if he could write songs about biblical passages, that the kids, the Indian kids in the school could understand about Jesus much, much more and more deeply. They could sing these songs and then they could share these, their faith found through these songs with their parents. So it became kind of a missionary act. His songs should have never ever gotten out of Oklahoma, but he taught his song, Swing Low, uh, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, which was probably inspired by, you know, Ezekiel coming down to earth, you know, and seeing the chariot, having the vision of the chariot. Well, the chariot coming down to take Ezekiel home, I guess you would say, having that vision. Um, And he taught the song to the uh, children at the Old Spencer Academy, which was run by missionaries. And and there was a man there named Alexander Reed who happened to be there that day when the children sang the song, and he was so impressed with it, he took it back to Nashville, Tennessee, and the Fisk College Jubilee Singers, and they took it on a national tour, and it eventually got to England where the Queen heard it, and it became her favorite song. So Queen Victoria fell in love with Swing, that swing Low, Sweet Chariot. This, I think, is an example of the universal language of Christ. But I, I also want you to think about something else here. Why chariot? Well, back then, in when the biblical, uh, when the Bible was written, a chariot was the form of the nicest vehicle you could own. Only the rich people, uh, you know, owned this, essentially speaking, horse-driven sports car. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, if it was a Ferrari, if you if you want, you mm-hmm. know. It would beat the wheels off my 65 Mustang. I mean, this is a fancy car. And uh, if you think about it, these people who were slaves saw Jesus coming down and bringing them back to heaven in the fanciest vehicle they would ever get to ride in. They would never have a chance to even touch this vehicle. And yet Jesus gave them the opportunity, their faith did, to ride in a vehicle they couldn't touch while they were on, on earth. Once again, the rewards of heaven of, of being equal in God's sight, where every man is the same, where all of us are brothers and sisters. And I, I think that is the lesson that you also find in a lot of these hymns. These are people who are struggling, people who are downcast, people who are poor, and yet they realized the one thing they weren't poor in was faith, and that would eventually make them rich in glory. It's mm. just spectacular. Um, loving this. I know my listeners are too. I'm going to take a little break. Ace Collins is my guest. 
stories behind the songs and hymns about heaven. We'll be right back. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. Oh, well, I'm tired and so weary, but I must go along till the Lord will come and call, call me away. Oh, yes. Well, the morning's so bright. And the Lamb is the light And the night, night is as black as the sea That's a good message for today. Ace Collins is my guest. Stories behind the songs and hymns about heaven. And of course, that's Peace in the Valley, Ace. By the way, who's singing that song? Who, who, who's, whose cut is that? I'm going to have to put Rebecca on. That is Red Foley. That's uh, so I, th- so I thought it was. Red Foley had the first big hit on that. Um, Foley's version influenced a lot of people, and it opened up uh, the opportunity for people to to understand and get to know Thomas A. Dorsey's music out of the black church. Uh, Thomas Dorsey uh, was a man who went from the South to Chicago in the 20s and became a uh, Tin Pan Alley, if you will, jazz pianist. And what a pianist he was. And he was on the verge of committing suicide, though, because he just he was not happy, um, and then remembered the church upbringing it had, went to a church, and uh, rededicated his life in the midst of the Depression, um, early Depression, um, and decided to start writing gospel music that sounded like the music he had been playing in clubs. So, in a way, he was inventing contemporary Christian music before there was contemporary Christian music, if you think about it. The problem is none of the churches would play it. And finally, when his wife passed away, and then a day later, his son died in a tragic birth experience, he wrote uh, a song that he called, Blessed Lord, Take My Hand. We know it is precious, Lord, take my hand. Lead me on, let me stand. It became a a huge choral hit in both black and white churches. Uh, In the late depression, 1939, 1940, he's traveling across Ohio in a train, and he looks out the window and he sees these peaceful farm scenes out his window. At the same time, he's reading about uh, a world war that's already started in Europe. The diametrics of of having those opposite scenes in his head at the same time caused him to think about heaven and the allusions to the war are clear there. You know, when, when the lion lays down with the lamb, you know, it's all about when there's going to be a time when there's not going to be war and destruction. And the only answer in his mind was heaven. And he wrote Peace in the Valley. Um, it became an incredibly popular song during World War II. Red Foley had a big hit on it. And then it was almost forgotten. And uh, it, there's a great irony in the fact that Thomas A. Dorsey, as an older man, was actually watching Ed Sullivan one Sunday night in 1957, January 6, 1957, 
and was not expecting to see anything on Ed Sullivan that he had written. And Elvis Presley stood in front of a microphone and sang Peace in the Valley. And right before Presley sang it, Presley asked viewers to give money to the Red Cross to help 250,000 Hungarian refugees who were fleeing a Soviet invasion. Now, you would wonder, what would that one sentence asking people to, to give a little money to the Red Cross do in 1957? And what would the song that he would sing after that do in 1957? I think it was a combination of the song and the plea that worked together. But within one week, more than $6 million in 1957 dollars that had to be sent through the mail, not with credit cards or phone calls, reached the Red Cross to help those refugees. So Peace in the Valley became not only something that asked questions about when will there be peace, but it also for millions of refugees or hundreds of thousands of refugees brought some peace and comfort and joy and probably faith when they received this gift. It also made that night with that song made Dorsey a legend and Dorsey's music is still being played to this day because of that one night in 1957 when Elvis sang that song on, on the Ed Sullivan show. I definitely would have sent money if I were alive. Yeah. And, and, and those people did, you know, it was that one, that one plea followed by that. And I think that also helped take Elvis from being this, this rebel yeah. to, to, to suddenly being accepted um, by another generation as a, as a young man who was not scared to sing a hymn on, on TV. Even in 1957, you didn't see that very often on a show like Ed Sullivan. And yet Presley did it sang his mother's favorite song, and, and look what happened wow. in the process. You know, by the way, there were so many orders, so many requests. Within a, within a day, there were over a million requests uh, for Peace in the Valley uh, by Elvis Presley, and they had to go into a studio and, and cut Peace in the Valley and Precious Lord Take My Hand, and It Is No Secret, and um, uh, gosh, one other song uh, that became uh, the best-selling uh, extended play 45 of all time at that point. And it did that within just a couple of weeks. That's how much That's people amazing. were crazy about gospel music at that time. And the record companies didn't realize it. This is why I love why you write books, Ace. Well, it's fun for me to find out these little nuggets as well. Um, I mean, you know, it, it really makes me appreciate the music much more when you know the story behind the songs, in particular, the songwriters themselves. In Dorsey's life, if people get a chance to read it, is one of the great life stories of all time. And he really is. I mentioned earlier Tinley being the grandfather of gospel music. There is no doubt in my mind that Thomas A. Dorsey, you know, not the, not the orchestra leader, but the black songwriter, is absolutely the father of gospel music. We wouldn't have the, some of the great gospel music that we have now if it hadn't been. There would be no Gaither vocal band, I don't think, if there hadn't been a Thomas A. Dorsey first. Mm -hmm. Ace, this might be a timely hymn, but uh, we'll soon be done with Troubles and Trials. Oh, yeah. What a, what a story that is, because it was written by another African-American. And, and perhaps so many songs about heaven were written by African-Americans many, many years ago because they didn't have much hope here on earth. So heaven offered them uh, a great hope. And, and when you're looking at this man, he was a preacher. And, and he was a preacher at a church that was so poor, it had no hymnals. I mean... This is, this is when you're poor, is when you don't even have hymnals to sing on. And so, you know, Clebad Derricks was caught up in this, and he wrote these songs for, these, for his congregation and then went to Dallas, Texas in the 1930s 
and went to the Stamps-Baxter Music um, Company there in Oak Cliff, Texas, just south of Dallas. And he sang his songs. And he said, you may not like them much, but I want to sing them for you. And they fell in love with We'll Soon Be Done With Troubles and Trials. And they they said, we want to publish it. How much do you want for it? And the answer was, I'd like a box of hymnals for my congregation. It became one of the best-selling songs of the 1930s, and all the songwriter got was a box of hymnals. <laughs> but for his congregation and his people, that meant more than he could ever understand. He walked back into a recording studio in Nashville, Tennessee, about 40 years later, the 1970s, and they looked at this man, this old black man, and said, what do you want, sir? And he said, I'd like to play a couple of my new songs for you. And they said, have you ever written anything? He said, well, you may know something I I wrote, you know, we'll soon be done with troubles and trials and just a little talk with Jesus, because that was the other song that got him the hymnals. And they were just floored, and they checked it out, and it was true. And word music at that particular point um, went and took this guy's material and went back to Stamps Baxter, who couldn't even find him and didn't even know where he was, and they got his royalties back. But this man didn't get to record his songs until he was in his 70s, and he recorded them with his family. And that's a wonderful thing. You can find it online. Go listen to Tinley. His voice was not that good by that time, but boy, his heart was in those songs. To listen to him sing, We'll Soon Be Done With Troubles and Trials, is one of the most inspirational things I've ever heard in my life. Mm-hmm. Ace, we just have a couple minutes left, and I'm wondering what song might be in your top three. What, what rises to the top for you, Ace Collins? Let's do a real quick story behind Victory in Jesus by E.M. Bartlett. E.M. Bartlett was a guy who everything he touched turned to gold. Even in the midst of the Great Depression, this man could write music that lit up the world and kept him living a wonderful lifestyle through his publishing company. He never had to suffer, in other words. He was always seemingly blessed. And people always said, if anything happens to Bartlett, you know, he'll take that wonderful faith he's got and he'll form his hand into a fist and he'll shake it at God because he's never been challenged. Coming back from a worldwide tour where he had sung before presidents and, and kings and queens, this man with this incredible, by the way, upbeat personality, he wrote the country music hit, take an old cold tater and wait for Jimmy Dickens. Hmm. He, he was a funny guy. He had a stroke. And by the time they got him home off this train trip, he could not even move his hand. He couldn't talk. And the doctor said, what little time he has left, he'll never regain any of his senses. He'll be a vegetable. It took him several months to learn how to form words again. Then the voice was very halting. And finally, he was able to shape his hand into a fist. But rather than curse God, he stuck a pencil in it. And the man who could write music and write complete songs in five or ten minutes, it took him a month and a half. But he wrote the last song he would ever write. It would be published after he was dead. But that song proved he had never lost his faith, and it was victory in Jesus. And that song, I think, has the most incredible story and therefore is one of the most powerful songs I have ever heard because it was written by a man who had lost everything, and including his ability to sing. And he had to write five minutes. He had to write for five, six hours at a time just to get one or two words down. And yet he wrote this anthem that I think is one of the greatest anthems ever penned. Wow. Just phenomenal, Ace. I, I realized I could have you on 94 days in a row, and, <laughs> or 96 days in a row, and we could talk about a different book every day. It is a joy to talk about uh, the books, but I think it's more fun when people, I get emails from people who read them and been touched by them. I hope the listeners out there will enjoy the book. Well, I know they are. They've enjoyed this uh, hearing you talk, and I know they're going to 
get the book. It's called Stories Behind the Songs and Hymns About Heaven. Ace Collins is the author, and he's been my outstanding guest today. Ace, have a good uh, rest of the day. Let's do it again soon. God bless you all. Look forward to it. Yep, that wraps up our show. Thank you to all my guests, and a special thanks to Ace for giving me a full hour of his time. What an incredible story. Well, that's our show for the day, and you know what? Show for the week. As I'm looking at Philippians 1.6, it says, Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. What a great thought to end the week on. And it is the end of the week. Let's ring the bell. See you Monday. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.